Welcome to the Sales Development Podcast, your go-to resource for all things pipeline and revenue production in the tech sales world. Technology marketing, sales development, sales, and revenue operations have combined to create the go-to market engine fueling the success of SaaS startups and established companies alike. Each week, the Sales Development Podcast dives deeply into the strategies, tactics, people, processes, and technology that fuels the revenue machine. The Sales Development Podcast is brought to you by Tenbound. Get more free resources, insights, and intelligence today at tenbound.com. And be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I'm David Delaney, your host, and I'm joined today by David Brashears, the revenue mechanic. And he has actually read all of those books <laughs> behind him <laughs> and brings an expertise in this that we haven't seen before. Dave, what is a revenue mechanic and what are you working on right now? <laughs> Thanks for having me, David. Revenue mechanic is my way of saying that I spend a lot of my time helping revenue organizations fix their revenue engines. Revenue engines are everything from the tools that they're using to the processes, the workflows, the various employees and the various roles that are all supporting the revenue function, marketing, sales, the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah. And it's kind of a mess out there right now. I mean, we plugged in all these sales engagement systems that were supposed to solve all of our problems. And over the years, it's kind of, it's built up to this point. How did you get into this and how do you work with the clients to get it all sorted? That's a great question. I got into this whenever I left outreach. I was an early outreach enterprise seller and then the first strategic account manager at the company. So from like 2017 to 2020. And when I left, one of the things that I was really passionate about was helping outreach customers who I'd sold a lot of technology to be successful. A lot of folks had bought the platform, especially the larger organizations that I was working with. And we were still fairly early in figuring out what best practices look like. I mean, if you think about it, the whole idea of sales engagement platforms of technology that was going to run sequences or cadences really gave it, it was born in what, 2015, 2016. The idea had certainly been around before then, but as a technology, these platforms were pretty nascent. And so when I left Outreach, uh, went to a company called Sapper Consulting, founded a professional services practice there. And our job was really to go in and help companies figure out the best practices around outbound sales development, account-based sales development, inbound conversion, all of the things that you could use a platform like Outreach or in that practice, Sales Loft, Apollo, Groove. I've kind of gotten to play with a lot of them. What I found was there were simply a lot of folks who had invested in technology, but had not really figured out how to put it all together. And so that's what I've spent the past three to four years doing is helping either very large organizations unwind this technology and figure out how to put in the processes and the workflows that support it, or helping very young organizations lay a foundation so that they can be successful as they grow. Yeah. And just curiosity, which one do you prefer to do? Is it a blank slate? where you can come in and bring your experience and set it up right? Or is it uh, you know 15 different silos that nobody's talking to each other? So I'm a masochist <laughs> by trade. And as a result, I always seem to glom to the hardest possible problem. As a seller, you know, I got to outreach at a time when you couldn't throw a rock without finding a commercial size company that wanted to buy the product. But I immediately glommed on to the largest, most difficult customers to try to convert. There's just something about a challenge. So while I like working with younger startups and helping them lay the foundation, it's more of, you know, put, putting a blueprint together. 
working with the very large attractable problems, figuring out how to unpack global deployments. That's just kind of fun. Yeah. And where do you start with something like that? Because there's so many people involved. There's so many systems involved. Nobody knows who bought what and how it all works together. (laughs) And I mean, I'm giving you the worst possible scenario, but no, it's true. Where do you start? Where would I like to start or where do I usually start? <laughs> yeah. I'd like to start at the top down. I really do believe that one of the biggest challenges. So I the whole revenue pie is tied up in this. I spend a lot of my time focused on sales development, the particular top of funnel deployments. Never thought I would. Always thought I was going to be focusing most of my, you know, post-sales career on closing and expansion plays, which is where I spent most of my career time. But sales development really has some needs. In sales development, we have got one of the youngest functions in the organization. You know, if you really think about it, this is something that has been going on since the 1990s. But sales development as an articulated function really began in, what, 2010 with the publication of Predictable Revenue, right? It starts getting professionalized by folks like Trish Bertuzzi in 2016, 2017. We are a very young professional discipline. And so there's not a lot of leadership alignment between marketing and sales and within the functions within sales to really know what we need to do to support it. So where I'd like to start those conversations is at the leadership level, to talk to the revenue leaders, whether that's in marketing or in sales, about the things that you have to do to professionalize and support sales development. Mm -hmm. Where I usually start is with particular either teams within regions or global teams that are trying to solve the problem across regions. And so it's very much coming in from a corner and trying to suss out what's wrong and start to lay the groundwork for fixing things from a smaller piece of the problem. Well, one of the challenges is it kind of sits at the middle of an intersection and uh, sales development. You've got marketing, you've got sales, you've got the executives, you've got all these people and the revenue operations is sort of the middle of the swirl. So as somebody who doesn't work at the company, how do you come in and start the conversation and like build rapport, it seems? One of the nice things about my job is that everyone who's involved in the revenue organization understands that basically siloed nature of things. The folks who are in sales enablement and the folks who are in revenue operations and who might be split between sales ops and marketing ops, they're not blind to the fact that they're each theoretically pulling in the same direction, but there are a lack of communication channels between them. At some level, there's kind of a desire for someone to come in and create those opportunities for dialogue across the different parts of the organization. And so one of the very funnest things that I get to do is start making those conversations happen, literally pointing out the interfaces between the things that an enablement team is doing from a training perspective, the things that a revenue operations team is doing from a technology perspective, the things that the frontline managers and reps are doing in terms of articulating their processes of workflows, and making sure that all of those things are in a line. So the very first part of this is starting to point out where those unarticulated gaps exist. Where are the places that we've just sort of cobbled things together and we haven't laid out a well-articulated prospecting plan? How many accounts should a rep engage each day? How many prospects within each account? How many would they be adding per month? What's our expectation in terms of the throughput of that, right? So many organizations have processes. They just don't have well-articulated understandings of how that impacts those different roles within the organization. So starting those conversations is how you begin to fix them. And how long would you usually work with a client in that case, in the bigger ones? I mean, yeah. Yeah. So I've had relationships with clients that have spanned years and have gone for 
successive quarters working with different teams, projects that have gotten put on hold while we go solve some other underlying problem that we've discovered. And I've had some engagements that will run for as little as three months, where it's more about kind of training the trainer, showing them the way, getting things set up, and then enabling strong leaders to be able to continue the work. So it's really a function of how deep the problems are and how much commitment you have to getting them done either with support or on your own. I've had other engagements that are really, really short. And what I figured out is I don't know how other trainers do it because there's not a lot of change management that you can get done in extremely short periods of time. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I've come to realize is kind of a necessary entanglement here is the nature of the work requires longer engagements. Mm -hmm. This isn't stuff that gets fixed in a single quarter or oftentimes even in a single year. Yeah. You're bringing in this change and leading the way to alignment. But then as soon as you leave, then, I mean, everyone kind of goes back into their own thing that they're working on and their head's down trying to hit their goal. Is that something you see? So if you're doing it right, if you set this up correctly, part of the process is managing that sort of inherent inertia, right? All systems are going to want to overtime degrade and you're going to want to have variance. But Building in things like a regular cadence for managers to be checking in with reps and for directors to be checking in with managers, building in reporting structures that have expectations about how we keep people on track in terms of are they following the plan? Where's the deviation occurring? How do we coach to those? When you build the program around understanding what consistency should look like and you build into it management that's designed to keep people within those guardrails, the system has a sort of self-correcting mechanism baked into it. And so the entire idea here is we want to build something with enough consistency and repeatability that we can start testing and iterating with some degree of confidence. In a world of sales development where every rep is doing their own things and we have wildly disparate motions that are producing wildly disparate results, it's impossible to rationalize what we're doing. The predictive element of building a predictable revenue engine is gone. And so part of what I do is help folks put in place a structure, but putting the structure in place is not, this is the end all be all, here's what great looks like, keep doing it. It's putting in a system that has the flexibility over time to be able to test, measure, and iterate. And so when you bake in that notion that we're going to be continually looking at this and improving the process, and you build the systems that are designed to get those feedbacks, provide you the information about where deviations are occurring, and help managers locate the points that they can push on to have a bigger impact on the outcome, right? then you've built a system that's designed over time to be self-sustaining and to have longevity. So that's kind of the program here is let's take control of it. So it's not this inherently chaotic mechanism that's going off in a million different directions at all times. Okay. And it seems like this stuff is hard. Your project management of this thing with multiple stakeholders who don't necessarily report to you. (laughs) None of whom report to me. (laughs) None of them. You get the project management piece set up to the point where it's self-sustaining and you work your way out of that particular job basically, with the clients. Exactly. Depending on the size of the company, another one pops back up like they always do. And then you start working on that or they're good. And that's the end of the engagement. Man, if I had it my way, I would love for this to be a three to six month program that you start with leadership alignment. And I think that's the goal over time, right? Part of the reason of writing the book is let's 
start proselytizing this as the program and make it something easy. If it came from the top down, if it was organized and coordinated from the outset, if it had that kind of organizational imprimatur that said, this is the way we're going to do things, I think it would be possible to do this in a much more efficient way. The way that these typically happen is by solving one small problem in one small corner of an organization, demonstrating your value there, and then starting to claw in the other pieces of the puzzle. And so you solve it very much from a bottom-up perspective. I think that elongates these engagements. It's a necessary thing. You've got to build that trust. You've got to show that you can do it. Everybody's inherently skeptical of anyone who claims that they can manage the chaos of change. Right. So I think there's going to be a long road that all of us who are in this business, we're going to have to solve these problems in a piecemeal fashion. But the goal should very much be that by the time we leave, the places that we leave should be able to operate without us being involved. And I'm just thinking in the perfect situation, would this be a great RevOps leader who works at the company, but they have the autonomy to be able to align the revenue engine along this continuum that you're describing? Is that what should be happening? That's a really hard question. To some extent, I think that we've given RevOps this almost omniscient set of power, an omniscient expectation. It's not that we consider them to be omniscient, but we're sort of asking them to have expertise in a lot of areas. Understanding from a RevOps perspective what enablement needs and what enablement resource allocations ought to look like, that's two very different sets of expertise. Understanding from a frontline manager's perspective than RevOps. So a little bit of this is having, it's nice to have an outside consultant who can bring in an understanding of the different roles and make sure that all of these things have a sort of equal voice. It's not that I'm an expert in each of those functions. My expertise is more in being able to facilitate those conversations so that each function is elevated to get its sort of place within the organization. One of the challenges within an organization of giving the power to someone like a RevOps leader and then asking them to do all of this is they really have to be able to have that conversation in a way that elevates each part of the organization to a peer level. So that sales development, for example, isn't relegated in terms of its resource allocations to the account executive teams or the account management teams, right? So if you get a revenue operations leader with enough seniority to be able to do that within the organization, I think they could. I think this is a leadership level concern. And at some level, revenue leaders need to be responsible for making sure that this conversation happens. And it's something that I think a lot of revenue leaders are missing right now from their remit, and that is making sure that the various component parts of the organization are working well together. There's a lot of dysfunction and silo within the revenue orgs, and I think some of this falls on the senior leaders to go figure out how to fix. And that was supposed to be what the CRO would do. Right, exactly. Okay, yeah. And do you see good examples of a what a CRO aligning all that? Or is it still Absolutely. Sort of a glorified VP of sales job? I mean, this is as with anything that we talk about. I've seen sales development that is done so poorly, I can fully understand why the folks have pitchforks and torches outside of the castle, right? It's time to kill the beast. But at the same time, I've seen folks like Snowflake who are just crushing it and are doing the same things that Outreach has been doing it forever, that DocuSign and Discover.org and all of the you know companies that I watched blow up on the backs of Outbound do great. I think the same thing is true of sales leadership. There are some sales leaders who are walking the walk and who are truly unifying the 
every piece of the revenue organization be pointed in the same direction. They're taking control of channel. They understand marketing. They are able to do things like figure out how a Fed sled pipeline generation engine is going to be a lot different than an outbound B2B pipeline generation. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's everybody because I don't think a lot of CROs have gone through the kind of training that helps you get there. I think Pavilion and other folks who have CRO school are starting to professionalize it, but the CRO role just kind of came into existence on the idea that we needed to do this. I don't think there's been a great playbook, or at least I haven't seen the great playbook for how to actually put it into practice. Mm-hmm. That's the gap in organizations right now. We lack leadership at the top that can elevate things like the sales development role, tie it together, formalize it, give it the kind of structure that the best organizations are doing to be successful right now. Okay. So that's your next book. (laughs) Give me a leader. I don't know how to do it. I just want it. All that book is going to be is like, please, somebody go find these people. Yeah, (laughs) you can work. Put them in charge. I don't know how to do that part. That is not in my remit. You're taking this framework that you put together with the clients and putting it into a book now. Is that the step-by-step, you know, paint by numbers to be able to do this yourself? You know, it's super funny. I started writing this book because I read a lot of things recently that are kind of an attack on sales development. Does role specialization isn't even important? Customers now in charge of more of the journey. They don't want to talk to sellers, right? And there's this idea that for a lot of companies outbound, which is how I think of sales development is somehow optional. And it's simply not. And so I wrote a book that was essentially a diatribe and a defense of sales development and how all those dummies are wrong. And that was really not the book that I wanted to write. So after getting about 250 pages of the way through it, sharing it with some people I really trust, I figured out that's not what it is. So yes, the book in its second iteration is much more of the paint by numbers approach. And it starts with helping folks understand what are the commonalities among the companies that are doing sales development right And what do I see from all of the companies I've seen that are really having challenges? What are the things that we're getting, you know, tripped up on? And it's amazing the consistency between what companies that are doing right are doing right and what companies that are doing wrong are doing wrong are incredible. And it all boils down to organizational efficiency, right? Having some degree of programmatic structure. The folks that are running their sales development organizations in a laissez-faire fashion, where they just let reps do whatever they want, write their own sequences, figure things out, stick your email in lavender, say a prayer, and hope good things happen, Mm -hmm. it just doesn't work. I've yet to see an organization running at any degree of scale be able to do so successfully in that environment. Okay. And so you'll be naming names. I'll be naming some names for sure. On the positive side. So the first part of the book was really naming the names of all the people who I think are just getting this wrong. And that was what I decided probably doesn't need to happen. It was a much funner book, I promise you. It was super snarky. My wife even laughed at a couple of lines. But the few people that I gave it to were like, don't change a thing. And the ones that are smarter were like, yeah, you can't write that. (laughs) I'd like to read that. I don't even know if it's going to be a book. It's probably going to live on Kajabi. It's probably going to be the book chapter combined with worksheets. A lot of what I do is spending time helping organizations from a sales development perspective figure out the amount the individual SDR can do in any given period of time is much less than you probably imagine. I think a lot of times when I look at what an SDR is given just in terms of a territory allocation, it can be literally hundreds to thousands of accounts at a time. When in reality, a good SDR doing a good prospecting motion, taking time to make sure they're looking at the right account, they found the right prospects, they're putting them into the right sequences, they're going to be engaging no more than a handful of accounts a day. 
Every day they're going to pick somewhere probably between three and six accounts. And they're going to pick somewhere between three and five prospects in each one of those accounts. And they're going to stick them into a sequence. And then they're going to begin over the next 30 days executing the tasks as they come due. And that's going to be a waterfall. Every day they add more prospects. Every day there are tasks that have accumulated from their past efforts and that are now stacking up based on the new ones. If you're using good 17 touch sequences running over 22 business days, about a one month engagement, your reps are going to be able to engage somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 prospects, assuming about a 20% reply rate, a 5% conversion rate, 250 accounts that you'll be able to engage in a quarter, right? So think about that. That means you can assign 100 accounts to a rep in a month, and it's going to take them that full month to get through them. And they're really only going to get to about 75 of those. We allocate way too big. We think about our segmentation in chunks that are way too large. Marketing thinks about TAM and the tens of thousands and sales. When we think about the serviceable, obtainable market, we're talking about for each individual rep, something in the neighborhood of 250 accounts a quarter. And so just thinking down through our segmentation decisions, how do we focus our reps on the small handful of accounts that are the best probability for converting right now? That is a monumentally different way than most organizations tend to think about go-to-market and how they think about things like territory allocation. So the book and the process is a lot about changing the way that we think at the outset of what we're really asking our SDRs to do and how much their capacity, their prospecting capacity limits what we can expect to accomplish as a go-to-market organization. And that lets you set more reasonable targets to have more reasonable quotas, to have a better understanding of what you can expect the engine to produce at any given time. Okay. And then on the flip side, if someone comes to you and they want you to build the program from scratch, you don't have a lot of that data and they may not even have product market fit. They think they do, but yeah, you kind of <laughs> need to find out where do you start with a situation like that? You know, for companies that are starting out, if you don't have product market fit yet, if you are kind of in founder sales mode and it's just a couple of founders who are going out, all you're looking for is your niche. You're trying to find that small area of the market where you can be successful and get yourself down. And at that time, what I try to convince them of are a couple of things. One is it's not a good idea to completely tap your network and try to get all of your friends to buy your new product and application just because they're a friend. We got to go find people that are actual customers. And we got to go find the folks where we can actually demonstrate that fits an actual thing. So for them, it's a lot of that same process, narrowing down what we think of as our obtainable market to a small subset that we can then go test. The biggest limitation that they're going to have at the outset is you don't have any sellers. You don't have SDRs who are lined up getting these meetings for you. And so you've got to be a lot tighter in terms of the areas that you're placing a bet. And you got to follow through on those areas to get at least enough to test. One of the things that I found in doing that is you also have to diversify. So I worked at a company called Civitas Learning, and they sold predictive analytics to higher education, working on sort of student success. How can we find the key drivers of student success? New product, defining a category, 2015, 2016. And one of the things that they did right at the outset to get their first 12 customers was look for a set of customers who were private four-year colleges, public four-year colleges, a set of two-year colleges, and a set of for-profit colleges, which gave them as their initial mix of customers a way to understand their impact in each one of those very different selling environments. For anybody starting out, as you're picking your niche, find enough variation within that narrow niche, in this case, just higher education, 
that you can go figure out if there's one of those that's going to be a better bet for you early on. We figured out at Civitas that while the two-year colleges were great and there was a lot of need for them and they could get through the procurement process, the product was a lot harder to make work at their level. And so it created a lot of friction in terms of keeping those. We found out at another level that having the public four years was fantastic, but the purchase process could be brutal. Those private four-year colleges, however, had a lot of money and they could spend it. Procurement was easy. You didn't have to go through a state procurement, right? So there are lots of things that you can learn about that segment of the market. When you're first starting out, you need to narrow your niche, but you need a test along a vector that gives you enough understanding of where should you initially put those early resources to get the most wins fastest. Mm-hmm. And is it hard for them to start to pick up on the clues you know, that are coming in from the outbound? Say they've got like one SDR and the founders are doing outbound, mm-hmm. starting to test, and they're getting some feedback. They're maybe even getting a couple customers. Is it hard for them to figure out like, okay, this is the path that we should take, you know, for the next three months. And we think that there's something here, but we're not really sure. I think there are two really hard parts. The first hard part is they don't have enough patience to let enough data stack up to know that you're actually seeing a pattern and a trend, right? Because if you only have five or six meetings, those five or six meetings are not nearly indicative of the 60, 70, 80 that you're going to need to start getting to some kind of reliable understanding of the market. Now, it's still, you've got to make some decisions. So the first mistake that they make is they really over-index on those first five meetings, without really asking themselves, how confident was I in the hypothesis that I was going into this with? Which means the substance of those five meetings over-determine their decisions. They tend to look at those and go, oh, this customer thought we should have a blue button here, not a red button. Let's make it a blue button. Even though that was one customer's opinion about one small thing. And so the challenge that they have is those initial outbound conversations can tend to become something that they way over-index on the weight and value of that opinion or that request. So I spend a lot of my time telling them that's way outside of what we theorized the place was going to be. Do you really think this was indicative of the market or do you think this was just one wild-haired opinion that we maybe should go validate against a bunch more examples before we change the direction of the ship? People are very quick, especially founders, are quick to hear a customer say something slightly flattering and then want to build around that interest. And that's, I think, the opposite of instinct that we need. We need people to instead have faith in their product and kind of look for the customer that's right before they're willing to very radically revamp things based on a handful of opinions. Yeah, there's all those opinions, but really where the rubber hits the road is, will they sit down and talk to you for have a meeting? Will they give you some money? Will they buy something? (laughs) Right. The hardest part in coaching founders, and I sit on a lot of founder sales, the most frustrating part is that they get happier ears than I've ever seen an account executive get. They hear someone say, this is interesting. And they're like, oh man, they're going to play rack rate. They're going to be ready to go. We got 500 seats. It's like, dude, no, they said that's interesting. Like you're a million miles from ink on paper and understanding the million mile track that you've got to make, knowing that you can't just lob a proposal over the fence. What a proposal even looks like. What other stakeholders are going to be involved? One of the biggest mistakes founders make is they get to start conversations way up on the totem pole. 
their investors have introduced them into the CEO of this company who doesn't have shit to do with the decision ultimately of whatever they're talking about. It's going to be delegated two to three lieutenants down from that person. So conversations start that seem very promising and aren't remotely related to what it's going to take to actually turn it into a sale. That's the frustrating part about coaching founders. Wow. Okay. And a lot of them, these the, your clients are they're not salespeople per se, right? They're engineers who almost none. The product. Yeah. yeah. And so you see a lot of the things that you see in very inexperienced salespeople, probably. And it's funny, right? Because I think there's an assumption among founders that sales must just be something that they're good at. And they are good at that initial part. They can hype something up. They can get people excited. They know the elevator pitch in their bones. Like they can get through the first 30 seconds of a sales conversation, even the first couple of meetings super well. What they're not really good at are all of the things that actually make sales a profession. All of the stuff that we know about identifying other stakeholders are going to have a say in this, of figuring out who might be our potential blockers, of understanding what the internal politics is going to look like, of figuring out how to build a business case that's going to resonate with the CFO, who, by the way, you're never even going to talk to, right? Those are things that make sales a profession. And it's funny because a lot of founders, I think, think they understand sales and it's kind of trivializing to what it is that we actually do. It would be insulting if a founder who has no background in sales could just be walking in and doing the work to get these things across the finish line. So it's heartening in a way, because it certainly lets me see the value of all the work we've done as a profession. Yeah. You can't just walk in and, and do it. <laughs> no, for sure. And it's funny. Also, my marketer friends have a joke that everybody in the company is an expert in my job, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. Although yeah, exactly. everybody's a marketing expert, you know, but it's like, no, you're not. And that goes to my RevOps comment, right? That's the yeah. same thing as I think RevOps is about to be in that same boat where we're asking the RevOps to be our customer analysts. Can you help me do segment analysts to understand where we should be investing our scarce prospecting capacity this quarter and next quarter? I mean, to some extent, that's a RevOps question, but holy shit, is that ever an analyst question that may require a much broader understanding of the market than what we're giving the RevOps person who's charge is to make sure the systems talk nice to each other, right? So I think we've got to be careful that we don't expand the RevOps remit to go well beyond what any one person's capacities could possibly include. Yeah, it's like a unicorn. <laughs> You're looking for a unicorn. Right, the purple unicorn. The I don't purple. even want a blue unicorn. I need a purple <laughs> unicorn. That's amazing. And so Dave, you said that you have a Kajabi. Do you have a course? Or, I mean, what can people do to start to learn this stuff right now? You know, if they're hearing it and they're just like, yeah, this is exactly the problem. That yeah, you know. You think I would have a nice landing page. I've got a website for my company that I haven't touched in like since the day that I went and logged on to GoDaddy. I was like, I guess I need a website. Okay. Um, all of my business is 100% word of mouth and I just do referral from client to client. So it's pretty funny. I don't do any of that shit. If you would follow me on LinkedIn, you'll be able to hear what's coming out. I have a Kajabi. I ran a course earlier in the summer for account executives who are having to prospect more. But the whole thing's under overhaul. The book is going to become the course material. And it's all going to be released sometime around, I'm thinking, September and October, or at least that's what we're pushing towards. So in the meantime, just follow me on LinkedIn. You'll be seeing more of me because I'm going to do more of this stuff and try to hate less the self-promotion part of this that I couldn't yeah. be less comfortable right now. You have no yeah. idea. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, you're doing great. You know, it's funny because LinkedIn does get a lot of well-deserved bad rap for just being like a 
promotion vehicle and everybody's happy, smiley and stuff like that. But what's the alternative? You know, I mean, it's a great place to interact with B2B audiences. I wish I had it when I was a young seller. I mean, quite honestly, yes, there's a ton of noise and you have to know how to smell the bullshit. But I mean, honestly, if you're in sales and you don't develop that skill, oh, you're in trouble. I think that just is de rigueur. As far as a network goes, man, it's incredible. I literally do all of my business based on people that I've either worked with in the past or have in my network here or see something. And honestly, it's been incredibly productive. So that's how we met, take right? The good with the bad. Yeah, I, I mean, it is. I, you got to wade through it. But you were also at the Scale VC event that they put on, but we didn't actually meet in person, right? Yeah. It's all through LinkedIn. Yeah. I think that's right. If you've ever made an outreach unleash event, I was at those for yeah, many yeah. years. So there were, yep, I went I'm to sure, our paths have crossed somewhere along the way for sure. I miss conferences. I'm going to have to, got to get back to the conference world. Oh my God. You remember, I went to the one they did down in San Diego. Oh yeah. I was it there was sure. uh, Jocko Willing was speaker. Yep. Yep. Amazing. Yeah, Tom Cruise impersonator at the Air and Space Museum or whatever. I probably uh, met you. Yeah. That's so funny. Sure yeah, they need to bring it back. I know they're going to do one. We're doing it. October. October. Yeah, I've everybody should be there. I'll be there. Come out to Seattle. Always a good time. Right on. Outreach just got a free plug out of me. I should be getting sponsored. Come on. I know. Outreach. Give me a call. <laughs> we have plenty of inventory. <laughs> So that's great, Dave. Well, thanks for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Can't wait to get the book. It was a pleasure, man. Yeah. And we'll be sure to connect on LinkedIn for better or for worse. (laughs) All right. Hey, thank Thank you. you. I really appreciate it, man. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.